Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, as if you're not busy enough, we're making you do mm-hmm. more special interview pods. And today we have an interview with Tom Murray, who's a sports lawyer at the legal firm Mishcon de Rea, who agreed to talk to us and agreed to take some questions from our lovely listeners. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Just to ease you in to the interview, so to speak, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in sports law and your involvement in football. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm a sports lawyer at a firm called Mish Condorea in in London. Um, As my mum will probably tell you, we're pretty most famous for representing Princess Diana in her divorce. She (laughs) loves to to out to all of our friends. Uh, Probably more famous now for representing Gina Miller um, in two cases against the government in the Supreme Court. Um, but I'm actually part of the sports groups, which is headed up by someone called Simon Leaf. Um, so we're 30 lawyers across the firm with different areas of specialism. So it could be immigration, insolvency, employment, corporate, you know, reputation management, or, or kind of commercial regulatory, which is, which is my area. Um, I work across all sports, so but predominantly focus on football, boxing, Formula One, and esports. Um, yeah, over the past year, I've, I've advised on Anthony Joshua's fight against Usyk in Saudi Arabia. You know, been advising Formula One drivers on their contracts with teams, but I spend most of my time advising clubs on their compliance with financial fair play. Um, and I wrote the chapter, uh, co-wrote the chapter alongside Simon Leaf in, in Nick DeMarco's Football and the Law. And I know Nick's appeared on the pod a few times. Well, that's interesting. <clears throat> I, I've never associated the term esports with with lawyer. And what's what sort of things you get involved with there? Is that uh, in terms of branding or uh, paying for team names, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the same, exactly the same issues as you'd face in football. So esports is, is growing at an alarming rate, um, which is which is very exciting, particularly during COVID, it became very, very popular. Yeah. I think it's one of the only betting markets you could you could bet on. So along with along with table tennis in Russia and Belarusian football, I think everyone was turning to esports to to chuck on a uh, chuck on a flutter. Um but no, in, in esports we advise players on on their on their playing contracts with teams. Um, we advise them on their sponsorship deals, um, and then we advise teams on just like you would in football on on, on investments, on sponsorship, um, on on issues and disputes. Um, so yeah, very similar areas, albeit in a kind of completely different industry. Yeah, I, I'm totally the wrong generation for esports, but I imagine some of these guys have got the same sort of image rights issues as people like Harry Kane have. These are these are big earning kids, aren't they? Yeah, getting there. So we, uh, alongside being a being a sports lawyer, I, I run an esports agency uh, called Nevo. So we represent um, about twenty players in the game called Valorant, which is 
5v5 kind of shooter. Uh, and yeah, they, they travel around the world. Most of them are in Brazil at the moment, traveling to Berlin um, to, to be based there. But yeah, they're, they're, they're doing very well. And um, it's definitely an area where I think it could, it could compete, compete with traditional sport as, as more and more people in the younger generation turn to esports for entertainment than, than traditional sport. Oh, I'm getting quite wistful now, Tom. I was I was quite the Space Invaders demon in my day. <laughs> the only, the only things have been different. Um, back to football, and the important thing is, and I, I hesitate to ask you this, but our listeners do love a bit of context. Which team do you support? I'm a Chelsea fan, so okay. yeah. Okay, we could do a whole pod on that alone, but we won't, <laughs> we won't worry about that. Um, Tom, why has, why has sports law become such a growth industry in recent years? Because I mean, 20 years ago, it would have been a very unusual job. And what interests me is that at the same time, the government seems to take sport less and less seriously. There isn't even a separate minister for sport anymore, as there had been for decades. Yeah, look, I think the, the, the primary reason is that, you know, the issues facing our clients are becoming increasingly complex. And, you know, you can tell that by looking at the number of in-house lawyers at Premier League football clubs. So mm. when I started, if you if you had a Premier League club with a lawyer, you, you thought, oh, fantastic, OK, I can negotiate opposite the, opposite the lawyer now. Often it was it, it was people in the C-suite who were negotiating deals, and I think you know particularly in football and uh, and often in boxing, you know a lot of work is done on the basis of handshakes. But as the value and kind of complexity of these deals increased, there's challenges, and then it leads to more sports organisations instructing lawyers, you know, to make sure that they properly paper the deal and to make sure that they're protected. The, the kind of areas that we tend to be instructed on are, are you know, high value sponsorship deals or complex legal issues of which FFP is obviously one of them. Mm. Um, and also stuff involving new technologies where people are trying to understand, okay, well, what are the le- legal issues around NFTs or crypto? And these are the real kind of areas for growth. I think in terms of, you know, how the government looks at, looks at sport, you know, in some ways it, we're, we're bottom of the list and in other ways we're, we're right back at the top. So, in a couple of days' time, we're expecting the government to, to release its white paper Indeed. in response to the fan review. And I think, you know, this if, if this results in, in, in all of the recommendations becoming law, then I think this will be one of the most significant government interventions into the sports industry in living memory. Yeah, we, we have a question coming up from our listeners um, about exactly that. And we will be talking to Tracy Crouch, hopefully on Thursday, about the white paper. That's fantastic. Do you think, is there a reluctance, do you think, Tom, for government to interfere in football matters, especially around things like gambling sponsorship? Or is it that the government just think that Premier League clubs can afford better lawyers than they do? No, I used to think so. It used to be, you know, sport is seen as a very particular industry. It has its own tribunal structure. It has its own way of doing business. And, and that still is true. But I think it's now become kind of politically popular for the government to interfere in football matters. So, there's two big kind of white papers that we're waiting on at the moment. The first is, is the fan-led review, and the second is in relation to the Gambling Act. And, and both of these interventions into sport are, will have a, a colossal impact on how football in particular conducts itself. And I think if these, if these proposals do become law, then we're, you know, we're likely to see a, a really significant government intervention. You, you say if these proposals do become law, are, are you... Uh doubting that may happen no i suspect that they will actually i think um i think the the soundings that that we've heard externally and through through our various contacts suggest that all of the recommendations or close to all of the recommendations will be will be implemented you know this was this was part of the of the queen's speech 
um, you know, a year or so ago, and it's remained high up the political agenda, um, despite there being you know, quite a few changes in, in, in the ministers. And um, so I, I do think this is going to become law. I think what we're likely to see is, is people like the Premier League, the EFL, the FA, trying to kind of aggressively lobby um, the independent regulator to make sure that they kind of protect their, their political power and their, and their regulatory, regulatory power as well. Well, we'll come on to that in more detail in a moment. It's interesting, Tom, to hear you talk about football clubs, uh, excuse me, and football in general, seeing itself as uh, almost a separate entity. Because one of the many themes of our listener questions to you, and also of our listeners in general in the past few years, has been that football club rules seem to differ from employment law in general. Now, I can't see that that is the case, but why do so many fans have that perception, do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So there's a kind of couple of reasons. I think, first of all, employment law generally is often a, a misunderstood area of law. So yeah. let's take something like you know relegation clauses, for example. So this is when, if you get relegated, your your contract will say, okay, well, your salary is going to be cut by 50% if we play in the championship. And if you go down to League One, it will get cut again. And it's often kind of talented. Well, look, why can't we just insert relegation clauses into everyone's contracts? And that's because the contract is, is, is a negotiated document between two parties. And for one party to unilaterally change it would, would, would make it right for legal challenge. So I think that's one of the reasons. The, the second reason is that you know, a football player's job is, is very different to, to our jobs and, and you know, every, everyone on the streets' jobs. Because for, for me, you know, my contract with, with Mishcons, for Kieran, I suspect, at um, University of Liverpool, we we aren't employed on fixed term contracts. We have we have an indefinite contract, and what that means is that if I if I change my mind and say thanks very much, Mr. Cons, actually I want to go join a different law firm, so I wouldn't do that. Um, I I would then be able to hand in my notice and say I'm going to terminate it early. Whereas footballers agree to sign up to to a certain number of years, so they'll say okay, I'm going to play for Chelsea for the next eight years, and in return for that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to have a right to terminate that contract early. And I think there's a, there's a kind of special relationship and, and special characteristics involved in the employment of football players, which just isn't mirrored elsewhere in, in, in the world. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why fans can often look at football contracts and think, well, you know, this wouldn't happen for me, so why can't I do that? And it's because the contracts are drafted in, in very different ways. Mm. What I should say is that these, you know, this cuts across, it cuts both ways here. So just like a player can't terminate a contract early because he's changed his mind and no longer wants to play for Chelsea for eight years, it also means that Chelsea can't terminate the player's contract early if they if they decide, you know, actually we don't think he's playing well and, and we don't want him anymore. Also, our listeners know this, a long, long time ago, I was uh, involved in human resources uh, in the public sector. Mm-hmm. And what people don't realise about employment law in this country is it's slightly weird anyway it's because the, the word contract covers a lot more than just a written agreement that you sign when you take a job even simple things like something that's said to you in an interview could be included as part of your contract or something that's in the advert so it's rather a nebulous term employment law in this country is is quite vague compared to say america or other countries in europe isn't it or it can be and that's why it can be exploited yeah definitely and, and look i think the what people another kind of common misunderstanding with football is that you know sports lawyers spend all of their time negotiating transfers you know in my experience is probably one of the one of the least 
at least profitable and uh, these common areas of work that we get involved in. And the reason for that is that there's a standard form Premier League contract, there's a standard form EFL contract, mm. and they set out in very, very straightforward, basic terms. This is the this is the legal relationship between us. And yes, there's 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 areas that you need to negotiate and where legal advice is needed. But generally speaking, there's a there's a standard form contract which everyone has to adhere to. So, and it's that contract which which makes football slightly different to to the, you know my contract or or someone else's contract. Mm. Again, we've got a, a slightly more specific contract question coming up for the listener. But there's one last general question for me. We've seen a couple of examples recently, Raheem Sterling being one, where players are starting to use lawyers and solicitors rather than agents to negotiate on their behalf. Do you think that's a trend that will continue? I think it is a trend that will continue. Um, I think it, you have to be a certain type of player to have the benefit of that and to be able to to be able to say, actually, no, I don't need an agent. I think often football agents get a very bad rap and you know people see the fees that they're getting paid and say, oh, this is, this is unfair. What they don't see is you know them representing guy in, in League Two and negotiating with 10 clubs to try and get them an opportunity. And I think for those type of players who are who are lower profile, it'd be very hard if you just instructed a lawyer to say, look, can you can you find and negotiate a deal for me? However, if you've got floods of clubs who are who are chucking contracts at you and essentially all you need to do is 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 assess your value of the market, um, which you can which you can often do using technology and then negotiate the contract, which you can do using a lawyer. And I think in those instances, then, you know, the role of an agent is less prominent. But there's there's lots of other instances where the agent is is a real necessity. And I think we'll see that as the new agents regulations come in, I think the standards generally in the industry will improve. And a lot of agents who are, you know, brothers or uncles of of various footballers will will drop out because they won't be able to pass the new exam. Some listener questions for you, Tom, which you very kindly agreed to answer. Um, the first one comes from Tom Lawrence, or rather Tom Lawrence was the first one out of the pile because a lot of our listeners asked this question or a version of it. Um, and Tom says, if a football regulator were to be introduced in the UK or the idea of one, is there any legal challenge that could be made to stop its inception or limit its powers? And perhaps off the back of that, Tom, you could indicate as well why some Premier League clubs seem to be so against the idea of an independent regulator. Yeah, sure. So... Look, first, just trying to take the first bit of the question first. So, is there is there any legal challenge that can that can be made to stop the regulator? So, as we've discussed, the, the, we're expecting the regulator to be to be announced on on Thursday, the twenty third of, of February, um, or at least how it's going to become law. Um, I think if the independent regulator is introduced by statute, which means that you know Parliament creates a specific law to introduce this new regulator, which we expect it will. Then it'd be really, really hard to challenge this by means of any kind of judicial review. And there's a kind of basic principle of, of UK constitutional law, which says that what the King in Parliament enacts in as law is law. And it basically allows Parliament to make or unmake any law. So if that happens, it's really, really difficult to ever challenge that. Having said that, I think based on what's been said so far. The, the independent regulator sounds like it's going to be accountable to Parliament, which means that its decisions could potentially be challenged by means of judicial review. So this, if this happens, it will bring a, a whole new layer of, of legal and judicial scrutiny yeah. over football-related decisions. It's, is it possible, Tom, that it, it ends with the Premier League 
And again, I would like to ask you that question again about why you think Premier League clubs or some of them are so against it. Mm-hmm. But if if you know, the independent regulator is, is accepted as an idea, it becomes law, would it be possible for clubs to challenge the idea of the word independent in, in that the government says, right, this is the man or woman or person identifies as that we've given the job to, and then one of the Premier League clubs can go, actually, we don't think they're independent because they support a particular football club or because they've had a different job in the past. Yeah, you often you often see this um, come up in, in in the kind of sports papers around arbitrators, and you know, an arbitrator is selected to be the head of a panel, and someone says, oh, you know, he used to be an Arsenal fan, or he used to be a he used to yeah, be a Tottenham fan, as in the Man City case, yeah, as in the Man City case, exactly. Yeah. And it's very very difficult to challenge um, the independence of, a, of of someone in those positions unless you have really really strong evidence that they they can't put aside their their personal interest and, and adjudicate properly on an issue. So I think that would be would be really quite challenging. Um, and it would be quite a um, quite an out there attempt if you were to challenge someone's independence um, on the basis that, you know, they, they, they're a Spurs season to get out there. Yeah. Um, and in relation to the question about why are, why are certain Premier League clubs against the idea of an independent regulator, I think some of them are probably against it because at the moment they have things pretty good. You know, they have the Premier League is, has been a commercial success. Um, they get to keep the vast majority of, of money that's it's not all shared down the, the football pyramid. So it it arguably is in their best interests to have you know a self-regulated system outside of the um, outside of the, the government. I think the other argument is that. You know, and it's the similar argument to why there are sort of kind of specialist sports tribunals is that actually having a specialist tribunal and having a having a having a someone that regulates themselves means that when you determine questions that are very specific to sport, you have an expert who understands the issues that it's facing. Whereas if you if you kind of go towards um, a more traditional system and say, okay, well look, all sports cases, every dispute between an agent and a player. Is going to be heard in in the UK courts. You might be given a judge that doesn't necessarily understand the specifics um, of, of football. I don't think that's likely here because I think the regulator is going to be selected from people who have real expertise in the space. Um, but I think it's I think that's generally the reason why people prefer self regulation. Our next question, Tom, comes from Robbie Whitaker. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting one because Kieran has explained the difference between these various things I'm going to ask you about from a financial background. Yeah. But Robbie wants to know what the difference is from a legal background. And so basically, Robbie says, can you explain the difference between liquidation, for example, Berry, receivership, for example, Blackpool, and administration, for example, too many to count, um, basically covering what each is and when they might arise. And I realise this is an essay question, Tom, so feel free <laughs> to praise as much as you want. And he ends with a sort of sad PS, given where Southend United are at the moment, their fans might appreciate a, a layman's guide. And unfortunately, as I think Kieran may explain at the end of this pod, where Southend United at the moment is not a good place. But I think it's an interesting question, just a, a sort of brief distinction legally between all these terms. Yeah, look, you could you could really run a, a sports law course on, on this issue. <laughs> so, uh, and I actually do run a sports law course called the Sports Law Academy, which which oh well. Which, it informs people about these issues. It's it's free. You can sign up online. But this is this is one of the things that people often ask about. So, um, I should also say I'm not a, I'm not an insolvency specialist. So one of my one of my colleagues, Matthew Scola, um, in our in our sports group, um, helps me out with these types of issues. So, 
So liquidation receivership administration, they're all from a kind of football regulatory perspective, insolvency events under the, the EFL regulations. And sadly, we're often talking about this in the context of the EFL because Premier League clubs, apart from Portsmouth, don't tend to get themselves into um, into these levels of financial difficulties. Mm. So all what's common about all three of these events is that they carry with it a 12-point deduction. Um, and then, but they, they do have, they are very different in terms of in legal terms. And I kind of go for each of them, starting with the most common and then and leading to the least common. So administration, obviously the most common, which everyone often hears about. So we're thinking about Bolton Wanderers, Wigan, Derby. This is, this is kind of England's primary restructuring tool. And it often comes about as a result of a you know, shareholder dispute, poor financial management, or you know, an HMRC winding up petition. So what happens when a club goes into administration? First of all, someone called an administrator steps in and takes over the running of the club. And the directors often have their powers suspended. So they, they're no longer able to run the club. And it's the, it's the administrator's duty to, to do that. The second big thing that happens is there's a thing called a, a statutory moratorium, which is basically a fancy word to say that no one can sue the club and no one can wind the club up without the permission of either the administrators or the court. And the reason you have this is it gives the company some, some breathing space to try and find a solution. So, you know, if you're already in financial difficulties, you can, you can enter into administration and you can prevent someone else suing you unless they have the permission of the court. So it gives you it gives you a bit of time to find the next um, the next solution. So the administrator has to, has to adhere to what's called a, a statutory hierarchy. So first of all, what they have to try and do is they have to ask themselves: Is it possible to rescue the company back to solvency so it can continue trading as solvent? And the most common way to do this is to is to have investment from from a shareholder. Um, or from an external party who will put money into the club and pay off the debts. Um, and that way the, the company can be rescued as, as, as the same entity. The second thing they can, they can try and do is can they, can they sell the business of the company as a going concern? So this is when you know, the clubs run out of money, they're in real bad financial difficulties. And someone will say, look, we will buy the business and the assets of the club, not the shares, but the business and the assets and transfer them into a new company and, and run it cleanly from that point onwards. And the reason you do that is that you buy the assets, as so you buy the stadium, you buy the player registrations, you, you, and, and all of the club's other assets, but you strip out the liabilities so that the money that's owed to third parties is, is lost. Um, and then if that isn't possible, what the administrator does is, is liquidates the company. So what is liquidation? Liquidation is, is often people call it winding up, it's when that the club's really in trouble. There's no way of rescuing it. And it's basically like the funeral of the company. So the, the role of the insolvency practitioner in, the, in a liquidation is to collect all the assets of the club and to say, look, you know, X sponsor, you're owed, you know, you're owed 1 million players, you're owed X million um, and any other third party creditors, you're also owed money. We're going to gather all of the assets of the club. We're going to sell them off to, for that, to, that, to the highest bidder. And then we're going to use that money to part pay the debt. So if, if I'm owed a pound, then I might get paid 30p. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of priority that's, that's followed. And once the liquidation of, of a club is complete, the, the company is dissolved and it, and it ceases to exist. Um, often what happens is that, a kind of in football at least, that a new club entity is created. So 
this is what the rumours are around Southern United, which is yeah. when you create this Phoenix club that starts at the bottom of the football pyramid and then you have to go start again and try and find the way, find it all the way up. The last one, which I'll just touch on very briefly, is receivership. Nothing to get too excited about. Um, <laughs> yeah. Administration is much more common and receivership is like, really unlikely in practice. I think Blackpool are probably the only example of a receiver being appointed in, in modern football, from, at least in my memory. Um, so it's, it's essentially similar to administration, but where we, where we touched on administration, you have this statutory moratorium, i.e. this freeze period where no one can sue the club. You don't get that in receivership, which is why it's less common. Um, and normally it's one person who, who seeks to appoint the administrative receiver. And typically that's a creditor who, who holds security over most of the property of, of the club. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's not, not one to get too excited about. It's not very common. Um, administration is, is, is far more common and that's the, that's the one to brush up your knowledge on. It, it seems, Tom, or well, certainly the perception is, I think from a lot of our listeners, that HMRC tend to be the major creditor in situations like this. Do you, do you think they, they're reluctant to see a club go into liquidation because they understand the emotional difference between a football club and another business? Yeah, look, going into liquidation is never, that's the, that's the kind of the last, last chance salute. No one wants that to happen because as soon as, as, soon as a club goes into liquidation, you're essentially saying that there isn't enough money to pay off the creditors and you know that you're only going to get a percentage of the pound of what you're owed. So HMRC tend to do this when they're waiting for payment, they're waiting for payment, the, the owner says, well, yeah, we'll put money into the club, we're going to make that payment. And they tend to be relatively patient, but it gets to a point where they say, look, guys, you owe us this money. If you don't pay, we're going to issue a winding up petition. Um, and once the winding up petition is, is threatened or is made, often you see that's when the club suddenly gets excited and find, either finds extra funds to pay the, mm. to pay the debt um, or or gets or gets new investment into the club. So I think that there's lots of criticisms of HMRC and, and their dealings in football. Um, but I think I think often you know a winding up petition is generally seen as a as a last resort when you know they need to get paid and and that's the quickest way to make someone pay. This episode of the Price of Football is brought to you by the AI powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As you've mentioned player contracts already Tom and we have a lot of questions about player contracts a surprising number so I've just picked two that sort of reflect uh, the sort of questions we've been getting the first is from Ian Herbert and the second is from Uncle Terry um, Uncle Terry being a nom de plume that a lot of our listeners tend to use um, when they don't want to be identified for some reason but basically Ian says how much longer do you think the whole edifice of contracts in professional football can last surely at some point there will be a class action allowing players to resign from their job and move on unfettered, just like every other employee in every other job in the country. Um, and Uncle Terry says he has that in other jobs, a notice period is measured in months and not years. And I'm interested in these questions, Tom, because they, they indicate, along with another question we've got, that the sympathy for um, football players seems to be a lot more than it was when we first started this pod. It seems now that... Even three years ago, everyone was talking about pampered professional footballers earning too much money. And now there seems to be more of a recognition that they are human beings um, who are entitled to protection and employment law, the same as everybody else. Plus a recognition that they're not all on Premier League money because players in League One and League Two have the same problems. Yeah, definitely. Look, I think people often look at footballers and think, you know, that they've got they've got such amazing life. They, they earn all this money. They get to... You know, they get to travel the world and, and, and play a game they love. What they don't see is all of the challenges that they go through. And, you know, I've been sat in meeting rooms with, with players at the end of their career where, you know, they haven't they haven't been looked after. Yeah. They are in a dispute with their agent. They, their, their wife is about to divorce them. Um, and, you know, they, they know they've only they've got a certain standard of living that they're trying to keep up and they're worried about how they're going to keep it. I think people don't really realise also all of the challenges that go with that fame. Um, so I think, I think increasingly, because of the way footballers have been speaking out in the public, there is there is greater sympathy yep. towards them. Having said that, I don't have a, a huge amount of sympathy from, from from the point of okay, well, I want to be able to terminate this contract early. So it's a, we kind of touched on at the start of the of the of the interview the difference between you know mine and your contract, which are indefinite, and a fixed term contract, which has a specific period. And when you sign up to that specific period, you agree that unless the club does something really wrong, you can't just terminate that contract early. Mm. Um, you can you can try and get a transfer. There's various ways that, that lawyers can help players get out of contracts, but you can't simply say, look, I'm two years in, actually, I'd rather go play at Liverpool and I've, I've changed my mind here now and terminate that contract. And the reason for that is that, you know, the club is investing a significant <laughs> amount of money into that asset and they want to get a return on that investment and they can hold on to that registration to prevent that move happening. So yeah, I, I think there's a it's it's an interesting area. I, I don't think that this is likely to change anytime soon. This is something that every player signs up to in their contract. You know, at the start, 
and at every single deal they do they sign up to this to this deal that says i can't terminate this contract early unless the club does something really wrong so i think any idea of a class action here would be would be bound to fail um, and i don't think it's something that's that's likely to happen okay um you've touched on something there tom which is for another pod really because it's not even the legal question but We've we've seen in football a huge improvement in the way that young players are released now. It's not it's not like the old days when there's a a handshake and and you're kicked out at the age of sixteen. There is some kind of aftercare now, pastoral care, yeah, um, for young players at, at most clubs. It's not it's still not perfect, but I I think the way we treat players at the age of thirty four or thirty five who come to the end of their working life essentially, I think leaves a lot to be desired amongst all football clubs. Have they? These are people that have known nothing but football, and you know there's the occasional uh, course with the PFA or the, the football league, but there's very little to prepare these people for uh, essentially another 25 years of life beyond football, working life. No, I completely, I completely agree, and it's a really one of the hardest parts of our job is when you meet footballers towards the end of their career who are in really difficult positions. Often they're in those difficult positions because they've been taken advantage of by by hangers-on by their agent, by, you know, third parties. I once had a meeting with a, you know, a, a top Premier League player and we, we started off the meeting, went around the room and said, okay, let's just, let's just do introductions. And okay, this ex-person, I'm, I'm his advisor. You know, I said, look, I'm, I'm, his, I'm his lawyer. Then we had, you know, the driver there. We had the friend, we had the cousin. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. We, we started the meeting by saying, look, can everyone, can everyone who's not directly involved in this legal dispute leave the room because you're not going to be able to add much value to it. Um, so one of the things that I think would really help players is that at the start of their careers, when they, when they start up, speaking to a lawyer, speaking to an accountant, speaking to a financial advisor and getting a, a team of people around them that can make sure that when they get to 28, 29, 30, 32, that they've actually got investments in place. They've made smart decisions in terms of the contracts that they've signed. You know, if they get married, they've thought about having a, a prenup in place to and I think there's a I think there's a sixty percent divorce rate in the Premier League from within wow. two years of a player of a player retiring. Wow. And I think thirty percent of players go bankrupt within within a number of years of retiring as well. Wow. So that support just isn't often isn't given. And I think what I'd love to see is that early on in players' careers they get advice from professional advisors. And it doesn't have to cost you an arm and leg, but it's a lot cheaper to spend a bit of money on a lawyer up front than to try and spend lots and lots of money. In a, in a piece of litigation towards the end of your career when, when you probably haven't got the money coming in anymore. Mm. Ian Beresford has a number of those questions that are surprisingly sympathetic to players. And Ian says, one of the things that always surprises me is how fines work for footballers. Because there aren't many industries where you get fined for being late or for being abusive to a manager or for chewing gum in sometimes or for having headphones in. Is this something that could be legally challenged by a player? Because they seem like an unlawful deduction to wages. And... It's an interesting one, Tom, because this almost seems to me to be like a throwback to the old pre-minimum wage days when you know players were all working class and essentially owned by the football clubs, weren't they? And who could do what they want with them? Yeah. So look, to start off, just to answer the question bluntly, it's not an unlawful deduction of wages because right. there's a, a statute called the Employment Rights Act 1996, which basically says that a deduction of wages can be lawful Number one, if it's required or authorised by statute, and importantly for us, or a provision in a worker's contract. And number two, the worker has given their prior written consent to the deduction. And 
we mentioned earlier on in the pod about how in the Premier League and the EFL, there's a standard form contract. And that contract permits clubs to deduct uh, money from a player's wages where it can be clearly established as being due by the player. Um, And there's there's a kind of set disciplinary procedure in Schedule 1 of that contract which generally permits the clubs to impose a fine of like two weeks' wages for the first offence. It's normally four weeks for subsequent offences. Um, and yeah, and, and if, if that, as long as that procedure is followed and that the deductions are made in accordance with the procedure and in accordance with the contract, then it's not deemed to be an unlawful deduction of wages. Whereas, you know, for, for Ian Beresford's contract, I suspect that there is nothing in there which mentions. Um, deductions or fines um, and that's the reason why if his if his employer were to unilaterally impose a fine that he could then potentially challenge that as an unlawful deduction of wages right. so in terms of a, a statutory deduction that would be things like union dues yeah potentially I, I don't i don't know what the what the best example might be there um right. there could be there could be deductions you know for example at the end of your contract if you have um yeah, if you've taken too much holiday, for example. Oh, I see. yeah, okay, right, yeah, okay, okay. Um, we have three more questions for you, Tom. Um, the first one mentions uh, a club we've already talked about, Adam. unfortunately a club we talked about on the very first pod we did. Um, and Warren Stone says, could Tom explain from a legal point of view the actual situation of Berry Football Club as a legal entity, whether they still actually exist without an FA membership? Um, and basically, he says, cut through the chuff we've endured for the last few years. <laughs> yeah, so, this is this is a complicated question, so yeah. I, I, I do my best to summarise it. And the reason it's so confusing, and, and I got one of my insolvency colleagues to, to go through the administrator's reports and and do a kind of deep dive here, is that actually there are, there are three berries in existence at the moment. So let's kind of call them original berry, which is you know the one we all know and love, or perhaps perhaps not love anymore. Um, there's Gig Lane Berry, which is the, the second one, and then there's Berry AFC. So just to kind of give you the timeline. So original Berry got into financial difficulties and entered into what's called a company voluntary arrangement in July 2019. And then, as everyone knows, they were expelled by the, from the EFL in August 2019. So that, that CVA, the company voluntary arrangement, was then terminated in March 2020. Um, because the club had breached its obligations. And what everyone thought was going to happen then was that there was going to be a winding up petition and we'd move from 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 where it was into a liquidation process. However, as we all remember from, from March 2020 when we were you know, going on boring walks and, and making banana bread, <laughs> the, the COVID-19 pandemic meant that this petition couldn't be issued. Um, and this was because the courts were broadly closed there were some courts which were still opened but um yet you couldn't you couldn't necessarily issue a winding up petition so original berry was then placed into administration i think in november 2020 um, and it's still in administration now um, and if you want to look it up on, oh, wow. on company if you want to look it up on company's house it's now called ccfb realizations 2022 which is uh, yeah catchy name i think <laughs> and then um so that's that's original berry We've then got Gig Lane Berry. So Gig Lane Berry was a, a new entity which was incorporated in, in February 2022, so fairly recently. Um, its original name was Gig Lane Stadium Limited. And what happened was original Berry in 2022 sold the stadium, memorabilia, the goodwill, the IP, the plant and, machi- uh, plant and machinery 
um, from original Berry to Gig Lane Berry. Gig Lane Berry then changed its name to Berry Football Club Company, and uh, the original Berry changed its name to CCFB Realizations 2022. So it's the it's Gig Lane Berry who now has the name Berry FC, and it has the, it has the right to continue using that name. So as people have been would have been following over in the news. So Berry FC have applied to join the Northwest Counties League for, for next season. Um, but this application has been rejected because they don't they don't meet the relevant criteria. Um, they're trying to appeal that decision. And there's also a separate application to join another league. And now it's over to the FA to determine in what league Berry FC, as we, as we call it, will play next season. The, the kind of spanner in the works or the, or the curveball here is that there was a, a new Phoenix club created, which is called Berry AFC, which was set up by a group of fans in, in 2019. So this is a brand new entity. It doesn't own the IP or the assets of the original Berry. Um, it plays in the Premier Division of the of the Northwest Counties League, um, which, funnily enough, is the actual the league that Berry FC has applied to, yeah, but were yeah. rejected from. Um, and there's and as people would have seen this week, there's been an attempt to kind of merge these two clubs. So. Um, you know, Gig Lane Berry and Berry AFC, um, but it wasn't supported by the, the by the kind of required numbers to make this merger yep. happen. But there's ongoing conversation. So yeah, the reason it's so confusing is because there's three berries in existence still, um, and that's why when someone says Berry AFC, it's hard to know or Berry FC, it's hard to know who they're referring to. Yeah, that was um, as, as succinct an answer as I think anybody could possibly give. But I, I think the sad thing, Warren, uh, listening to this, is there's probably still a bit of chuff to endure uh, for the next while, at least, until that situation gets resolved. Um, and I feel I should point out, by the way, Tom, that you lawyers and some f- football finance experts may have been making banana bread during lockdown. The rest of us wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> I just, I don't, I, I, I haven't got a starter yeast. I, I, I feel, I'm the only person I know who hasn't got a sourdough starter. I feel terrible. Um, we've got two <laughs> questions left for you, Tom. I, we. I'm sure you can imagine how many questions we had about Man City. And we did want to ask you about Man City, but in a way that meant you didn't have to comment on the actual legal status of the case. So, And this was the closest we got, and it came from Mark Collins, um, who says that if, if it transpires that there is evidence that Man City are guilty as charged, would that possibly lead to ongoing police investigation in the same way that the FBI prosecuted FIFA? Yeah, I think I think there's a distinction to be drawn here. So if you, you look at the allegations raised um, and the charges, I don't think they're quite they go quite far enough to constitute fraud. So oh, okay, interesting. I don't I don't yeah I don't think that's this is likely at the moment. Um, I think if there if there was an allegation of fraud, then that could be taken forward by the police. Obviously, the police would have a higher kind of standard of proof, and and, and they would have to try and. If it, if it was prosecuted, they would have to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt, which is a, a much higher standard of proof than you would require in a, in a kind of civil standard or, or in a sports tribunal. So mm. I think it's kind of unlikely. Um, but And I think if you compare that to what happened in FIFA, you know, where there was clear evidence of, of bribes being, being, being taken, being made, um, I think that was why there's a distinction to be drawn here. But yeah, very happy to answer questions on City because, uh, yeah, everyone's been... Evans been getting very excited about that recently. Yes, they have. Um, I, I'm interested to hear about the, the different standards of proof required then for a, a tribunal than for 
for a court? I mean, is it possible to sort of estimate percentage-wise where that where that lies? Yeah, sure. So, normally speaking, in a in a civil in a civil matter, so you know, someone sues you, Kevin, for 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 slander, and um, because you've said something bad about them on the pod, the proof there is um, is, is the balance of probabilities. So, normally that's seen in percentage terms as like a kind of 50-50. If you get fifty-one percent and the other guy gets forty-nine percent, then you win. Um, and, and vice versa, whereas the criminal standard is, is beyond reasonable doubt. So that's a much higher standard. So the jury has to ask themselves, is this, has this case been proven beyond reasonable doubt? And people often talk about this in percentage terms, it's like 95% um, could be higher in some cases. And then for certain tribunals, they have um, a different standard of proof, which isn't as high as beyond reasonable doubt, but it's not as low as on the balance of probabilities. And they say it's to the, to the comfortable satisfaction of the tribunal. It's anyone's guess where you want to put this. I'd say probably 60-40 is the, the best place to, to look at it. But it's generally seen as somewhere in between the civil standard and the criminal standard. That's interesting. It's also interesting what you say about slander there, Tom, because um, not long ago I was on stage during doing a show and I was uh, speculating in a hilarious fashion about uh, Prince Andrew's status as a wrongan. Um <laughs> Uh, and a lawyer approached me afterwards and said, you might like to reconsider some of that stuff uh, you're saying on stage. And I went, no, it's fine. Uh, I, I think you'll find the law says that, uh, uh, on stage you can say what you want. And he went, comedians always say that, and it's not true. <laughs> so I, was, I was intrigued to discover that. And then I yeah, went, I think yeah. it's, um, yeah, well, we've got a, a whole team of reputation management lawyers who, who, who focus solely on this issue. I don't know if anyone's seen the film Denial, um, but there's a, there's a, there's a film which, which focuses on on the defence of, of someone who wrote a book about the Holocaust um, and she, she was then sued yeah. by, by someone who said, actually, you know, he, he, he was called a, a racist and an anti-Semite yeah. and, and then took, took great offence to it. And then essentially the, the case was they had to prove that, that, um, that, that, that the facts were, were true, were justified. Um, and that was my firm, Mishcons, who... Who represented the uh, the defendant in that case and won? Again, that seems to be it's another area in law that we hadn't heard of twenty years ago. Reputation management. I, I write and have I got news for you, and it's one of Ian his lots big bugs. Is it is it still true that um, people tend to sue like over overseas companies will sue people in Britain because the rules are slightly different here? Yeah, the rules are slightly different here. Uh, I've got this from from, <laughs> from watching the film Denial at the weekend, so this might not be the accurate legal summary of the position, but. Uh, my understanding is in the US, the kind of burden of proof is is reversed, uh, and in the UK, and in the UK, so I think in the UK, and don't quote me on this, but I think the obligation is on the defendant to prove that what was said was true, right. rather than on the claimant to show that it was false. So my final question comes from Terry the Train Spotter, and it's a question that we get a lot. It seems to really aggravate football fans this one, uh, as well as aggravating certain football finance experts that we know. Um, uh, Terry Trainspot says, if a football match is rearranged due to TV demands, does a fan have any rights then in terms of a refund if they bought a ticket? I know some, you know, the Palace game against Brighton has been moved from the Thursday back to the to the Wednesday, um, Brighton's request, so it may not be a good example, but it happens all the time and it really annoys people because quite often you simply can't go to the rearranged game. Yeah, it's a, it's a definite definite source of frustration, and, and often happen. You've got such a, um, a packed fixture schedule 
and you know one tiny move can have a massive impact on, on the rest of the scheduling as well so the the kind of first place to look is at the ticketing terms conditions um which is which is the, the kind of initial set um, of things to look at and and there that should govern the process of 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 refunds often often refunds are are given for these for these instances so you know if, if beyonce changes the date of her tour at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and, and the person can no longer attend, they, they'll be able to they'll be able to get their money back. I think the thing that often frustrates people is they say, well look, I've also booked a train ticket and I've also booked um, I've also booked a hotel for the night and I can't get that money back. And and often the response from from clubs is well look we'll we'll pay we'll refund you the cost of your ticket, but we won't pay for these other types of losses. Mm. Um, the other place to look at is is under consumer law. So, under under the Consumer Rights Act, um, individuals have um, have certain rights which have to be have to be adhered to. And even if the terms and conditions say you can't do something, if the if consumer law says you can, then that trumps what's what's written in terms and conditions. And um, yeah, Martin Lewis, the kind of money saving expert, yeah. he's he's often often writing about these types of things. So I, I think what he says is often he manages to explain it in words which are. Which everyone can understand and thinks a useful. Resource. Well, also, I mean, what's very different now as well, uh, Tom, to when Kieran and I started watching football is that some of those travel costs now are huge because it's it's not just Kieran coming from Brighton or me coming from South London. You've got fans coming from Ireland. You've got fans coming from all over Europe. You've got many, many fans coming from from Southeast Asia who are offering making they're making these plans to come to games a year ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what the law does is it, it distinguishes between what are called direct losses and indirect losses. Mm. And, and the kind of easiest way to explain these is that you tend to be able to recover direct losses, but you can't recover indirect or kind of consequential losses. So the way to imagine this is that, you know, you've got a guy who's in a taxi and who's, who's about to fly somewhere to complete a deal and the taxi's late and then the, the, he misses the flight and then is unable to complete the deal. You know, he might be able to, he might have a claim that, you know, the taxi driver didn't deliver the services he said he would because he took too, too, took too long. It's gonna be much harder for him to say, okay, well, you know, I've got to buy a new train, a plane ticket now. And it will be even more difficult to say, look, I wasn't able to conclude this deal. Therefore I missed out on five million pounds. And, and as you as the loss becomes kind of more, it becomes less direct and, and moves into kind of consequential losses. They then become more and more difficult to to claim for. And and it's often a, an argument that gets raised. Well, look, I've, I've, I had to pay for this, this, and this. I had to pay for the, the babysitter. And I think what the law does is yeah. is to try and designate and delineate between okay, well, which ones of these do we think it's okay for you to recover, and which ones of these aren't okay for you to recover, but Often it's you know I'm I'm constantly left disappointed by by consumer law, um, particularly you know, if you order an item of clothing and it, it doesn't it doesn't arrive in time, they'll say well look, we'll refund you we'll refund you the price of the item. And you say well, well great, but I needed it for that particular event, so I couldn't you know I couldn't wear my uh, my nice my nice shirt to to watch the match. <laughs> Uh, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you very much for all your insights and answering those questions. Uh, and we wish you all the very best in your future endeavours. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Kieran, I thought, I thought Tom was really interesting. I, there was a couple of things I really picked up on it because it's always interesting to hear a legal angle 
on a financial question, if you like. And the two things on the Man City case that he was happy to talk about, the um, the, the idea, this difference between the burden of proof between the tribunal and the court and, and his opinion that he doesn't think that Man City have done nearly enough to constitute fraud charges afterwards, no matter what happens. Yes, and I, th- I think in respect of the first issue there, that can only help the Premier League because the burden of proof is that much lower. Yeah, um, you, you haven't, you know, it's uh, you're having to get a fifty-one forty-nine position, um, and in the fraud, yeah, I, th- I think I think that makes sense because yeah, I think some of the allegations are made in respect of the the shadow contracts, ultimately provided individuals submit their tax returns correctly, whether that money comes from Manchester City or another body, um, that's that's the individual's problem to di- to to disclose that to the revenue. So I, th- I think he's, he's absolutely right. There, is, there isn't a fraud as such, um, given that you have to say, well, well, who has been defrauded? The only potential people that could be defrauded would be the shareholders if they if there's been misrepresentations to them. And given that the shareholders are the owners who are Abu Dhabi, um, you, you can't see them effectively saying, well, we've defrauded ourselves here. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it made a lot of sense. But I, I like the fact that he was he was prepared to answer every question. And we've been very fortunate with, with both Tom and Nick DeMarco because we, I think we were probably a bit more wary than they were. We just say, well, you know, we, we don't want to put you in an awkward position here, but they've both been uh, very, very comprehensive in their answers. Yeah, they have. It's always difficult when you have a lawyer because we we know from experience early on in the pod, Kieran, that sometimes they don't like to comment on on ongoing cases, but uh, they're clever enough to do so without getting themselves into trouble. But I thought Tom's legal expert, I mean, we know the Berry story inside out from you, the financial aspect, but his sort of clarification on the legal aspect, mm. and it's still, I say clarification, it's still just as murky. I, and I'd, even if... You know, rediscovering that the original Berry are still in administration. Just yeah. to detail, I mean, it's I, I don't know what the legal term for shitstorm is, but it's still going on, isn't it? It, it is, and and it's still, in my view, one of the biggest tragedies in English football. Yeah, not not only that it allowed one individual to destroy the the history and the heritage of an individual town uh, in in a matter of weeks and months, but the fact that it's destroyed the people in, yeah. in that in yeah. that town and, and we now have all of this hostility between the two factions yeah uh, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our patreon page if you'd like to join them by making a small monthly contribution to the pod as well that'd be very kind of you and you can do so by going to patreon.com slash price of football and if you have a question you'd like answered on the show email us at questions at price of Bye, son, for the